events and stories. Rather than being real concerned about the chronological events, sometimes Mark will put things together in a thematic sort of organization. He wants us to see contrasts between those who were not devoted to Christ and those who were, how each of them approached Christ. And certainly that's the case as we come to this 14th chapter, verses 1 through 11. We're going to see spiritual leaders who opposed and did anything they could to somehow stop the truth that Jesus shared. We're also going to see one who treacherously betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had one way of looking at Christ. And then we're going to see a woman who was devoted to Christ and was willing to sacrifice no matter what it took in order to honor him as her Lord. And what we want to see is a contrast between these. Sometimes the sharpest way to bring something into focus is to show complete opposites, show that in extremes, uh, one is extremely bad, one is extremely good, and that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, as we come to this first verse of the 14th chapter, we're going to see the treachery of those who oppose the Lord. And as we look at these first two verses, we can find a conspiracy taking place. It says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were working for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Now we pick up some very, very pointed statements in this passage about those who were planning to plot against Jesus. First, we find that they were doing this during a religious holiday. As many of you know, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated the deliverance that God gave the children of Israel from slavery to Egypt. This was a very high holiday. It was something that was very important to the followers of Judaism. And so for the priests to take this time as an opportunity to plot against Jesus is almost ironic. One of the places where God should be honored and revered turned into an opportunity for them to plot a murder. So it shows the spiritual climate of the leadership of Israel, that they would take this time when they should have been worshiping God to figure out a way to do Jesus in and to stop what Jesus was doing. We also find that they were looking for some sly way. This is a good translation that the NIV gives us here because it captures the spirit of what was behind their desire. They wanted to stop Jesus at all costs. And even if it meant deception, even if it meant trickery, they were willing to stop Jesus no matter what the cost, but still within the framework of trying to hold on to their power. Because what we find in the next statement in verse 2 gives us insight into some of the thinking behind what they were doing. They wanted to stop Jesus. They wanted in some sly way, kind of under the radar, to take him out. But they also had people to consider. You see, they wanted to remain in leadership. So if what they did was too extreme they would have the people stand against them. And if the people stood against them, then they would lose power. You know, it's amazing when we look at how people treat followers of Jesus even today. 
Many times we'll find people who disregard the people of God, disrespect the people of God, and in some instances want to destroy the people of God. It's stop the message of truth at any cost. We don't want to hear from them. We don't want to listen to what they're saying. We don't want them to somehow recruit other people so that they might follow their Lord as well. And this is something that happened in the first century. It's something that happens today. When you look at the persecuted church around the world, many of them face opposition, wanting to kill them just as this group wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. They face it every day. Not because they're wicked people, not because they're harming other people, but because they follow God's truth. And if there's one thing that Satan detests, it's people who follow God's truth. They're dangerous to him because the truth reaches and changes lives. And that's the last thing that Satan wants to see. So these followers of the system that had been put into place in Judaism, which really wasn't even Judaism at all, they had co-opted it and turned it into their own religious system, it stood opposed to Jesus because Jesus pointed out their error. And the surest way to find opposition is to mention error. But then we move into the story about the anointing of Jesus. What I would like to do for a moment is put that on hold and move to the 10th verse. Because when we move to the 10th verse, we find something else. There are those who think of ways to silence the truth of Jesus' teaching, but there are also those who turn away from Jesus for personal gain. And that would be Judas Iscariot. If you go down to the 10th verse, you'll find Judas Iscariot mentioned. Now again, why did Mark mention those who were pursuing Jesus to kill him in verses 1 and 2 and then mention Judas Iscariot in verses 10 and 11? They sandwich a story of devotion. So what Mark is showing is how those who hate Jesus, who are opposed to Jesus, will stand against him no matter what and then contrast that to a woman who stood for Jesus no matter what. So let's look briefly at Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, we all know, was a terrible traitor. The Scripture tells us here in the 10th verse that Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to, to betray Jesus to them. So this was Judas taking it upon himself to destroy the work of the Lord and the Lord Himself. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us his motivation outright. It gives us some clues. It talks about the wickedness of Judas. John, for instance, told us that, and you can read this on your outline, the evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to, to betray Jesus. So what we find with, with Judas is a person who was committed to destroying the work of Jesus, but there was satanic influence in bringing him to do what he did. So you have not only his own flesh that pointed him toward greed, 
But Satan took the opportunity of his flesh that stood against the truth of God, and he merged with it, prompting Judas to do these terrible things. There was his own wicked disposition, but there was the disposition of Satan as well, who was behind the plot that Judas would enter into. Something else we find about Judas. Judas approached the chief priests. Now, perhaps word had gotten to him that they were going to give a ransom, a reward for connecting with Jesus. Perhaps he went and initiated it and said, I'll do this for this. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is his motivation. He was looking to get what he could out of his connection with Jesus. And what's so sad about this story is for those of us who know the ending, Judas didn't even get that. And you know, that's the lie that Satan often gets people engaged in. He'll tell people that they can have this or that, some thing that your soul desires if you'll just turn away from the truth of Jesus Christ. He'll encourage people to do that, and they buy in. And then what they find is not only have they lost a relationship or a knowledge of of who Jesus is, but they've also lost what they thought they would get in the first place. That's the deception that Satan often gives. Judas, I believe, never had that true relationship with Jesus Christ. I believe that Judas, for his own reasons, perhaps he wanted to get in on the ground floor of a new king and his kingdom. Perhaps he saw the excitement that people had as they were coming around Jesus and wanted to join in with the bandwagon. And then when he saw that Jesus wasn't coming as a political deliverer but as a spiritual one, he wanted to bail out. We don't know the motivation. It isn't shared very clearly in Scripture. But what we do know is this. He turned on Jesus and the disciples that he had been with for three years. And as a result, he's known throughout history as a treacherous, evil man because of what he did. Now, I don't want to camp out on Judas. I don't know about you, but I find Judas to be someone that's not worthy of us spending a whole lot of time on because he's so evil, I would rather look at the good example. So what I'd like to do now is go back to the third verse. And what we're going to see, even in this third verse, are two contrasting approaches to worship. When we look at the third verse, we find in verse 3 that while he, referring to Jesus, was in Bethany, he was reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. What we find at the beginning of this story is a location. Jesus was in Bethany, and we all know that in Bethany there was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, good friends of Jesus. Apparently, there was a leper that Jesus had healed, and he was throwing a feast, which would have been commonplace near the Passover, 
there would have been people who had guests. Bethany was very close to Jerusalem. So as a result, there would have been outside guests that they would have entertained. And so at this feast, this unnamed woman mentioned here in Mark, but she is named in the book of John. In the Gospel of John, Jesus names this woman as Mary, the, la the, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. And what happens is this. She comes with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Now, for us, we say, okay, she brings a vial of some expensive perfume, you know. So what? I, I, I can run over to one of the department stores and get a bottle of perfume. No big deal. Listen, in this day, it was a big deal. This was something that, as we'll see a little bit later in the text, was worth a year's wages. Husbands, how would you like it if your wife came and said, I'd like to buy a jar of perfume that's worth a year of your annual salary? You know? We might recoil at that a little bit, right? This was something that was precious. You see, it was made from a plant that was from India, and they would import it into the Holy Land, and it was a very special essence of this plant. And what they would do is use this as an oil to anoint kings and priests. So it had a very, very special purpose. It was also something that they would use in burial for embalming. So again, a very, very, very essential, important oil. So for Mary to possess this, she had to use a lot of her resources in order to buy it. And here she is taking this perfume according to the third verse, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, you'll find in some of the other accounts, Matthew and John also mention this event, that they'll mention that it went on Jesus' feet and that she wiped his feet with her hair. Is there a contradiction here? And I would say to you, absolutely not. What happens when you pour oil on your head? Gravity. What happens with gravity? Where does it eventually wind up? On your feet. So I believe that Mark is talking about the anointing aspect, where it's talking about Jesus being anointed and the picture of his rule and his kingdom and who Jesus is. It's a recognition by Mary that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's Messiah. But it eventually wound up on his feet, and when it wound up on his feet, she wiped it with her hair in a way of honoring him and worshiping him. But let's not get caught up in those differences in what's presented. Let's look at her heart. She took something very precious to her, and she worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ with it. The worship that she gave to Christ, as we'll see a little later in the passage, was something that blessed him. Something that he saw as a beautiful thing. And it was something that was extraordinarily precious. Something that was very, very important. What we'll see is not everybody viewed this in this way. When Mary took that oil and anointed Jesus and the fragrance filled the room, 
It was not only a blessing to Jesus, but it was a blessing to the others as they smelled the sweet aroma of the oil. And you know, I think that's a way that we can view worship of the Lord as we come and worship together. We can be in settings where the worship of the Lord is like a fragrant aroma that fills the room. You've been in some worship services, I'm sure, where it's touched you and ministered to you with such beauty and in such a way that you feel connected to God. You're experiencing that worship in a deep and full and meaningful way. And I believe that's what Mary experienced, and that's what I think the witnesses should have experienced when they saw this. But then we come to verses 4 and 5. And we find that there are those who treat an extravagant act of worship as wasteful. Look at verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Now, let's just pause right there for a moment. When you do something extravagant for the Lord, you can expect to meet opposition. When you give all that you have to the Lord, somebody's going to look and say, that is a waste. I remember when I was in seminary, and I was talking to one of my seminary profs, and they said, you know what, the kiss of death is when somebody goes up to a seminary student and says, oh, you're planning on going into missions or ministry? You're so brilliant. Why are you doing that? As if those who go into missions or ministry are somehow less brilliant. Maybe that's why I wound up in ministry. <laughs> They encouraged me. No. <laughs> but, you know, here's the idea. Um, anything that we do for God is never a waste. We should never look at something that someone does to honor God, to serve Him, as a waste. What this woman did was in no way a waste of that ointment. It was honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. I think she looked at it and said, what better use could I have for this? than to honor my Lord. And you know, I think there's encouragement here for all of us. Do we view serving the Lord as a waste? Or do we view it as something that is beautiful, an act of worship, something that matters, something that counts, something that is important? Something fascinating that you find in this text is this. Judas, perhaps, was the instigator of them having and voicing this attitude. John records one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas's motivation was perhaps self-serving, but look at what happens. If, if we combine John and Mark, what we find is not only did Judas object, but the other disciples objected as well. 
And you know what that says to me? We have to be careful about the voices that we listen to, even within the church. Judas sucked the other disciples into his attitude of criticism and negativity, and as a result, rather than experiencing worship and looking at what this woman did and saying, that's great, that's wonderful, that is such a statement about devotion to God, I'm blessed by having seen it. Rather than looking at it that way, after hearing Judas and his criticism, they became critical too. And so they looked at it and they said, that was a waste. Yeah, Judas is right. That seed was planted in their mind and they gravitated toward it. This woman, what she did was an act of worship. It was beautiful. It was a statement. And they couldn't see it because their minds had been poisoned. The fifth verse mentions that it's worth a year's wages, and the money could have been given to the poor. Listen. Nothing stops you from giving to the poor. And by the way, the point of this passage as we go through it is not that it's foolish to give to the poor. The Scripture says again and again that it's important to give to the poor, to help the needy. That's not what the passage is teaching, that we should pull that away. What it is teaching is this. It's never a waste to give our best to God. It's a very positive statement. And it's a statement that we need to take into account. We should be those who honor God with what we have, with our resources, with our best. Mary did that. She faced criticism for it. And let me say this to you. I've been in ministry 33 years And I've seen people who do extravagant things for God, and I've heard the criticism afterwards. We need to be careful to not allow what people say about what we do for the Lord to discourage us, but to ask ourselves, who do I do this for? Do I do this for them or for the Lord? One time, I heard a story about two people who were talking about prayer. And one person was saying to the other person, you know, when you pray, you don't use very flowery language. And you shouldn't talk to God so flippantly. And, you know, I I just don't think you pray very well. The person who was being criticized, you know what he said? It's okay, I wasn't talking to you. (laughs) Right? I mean, what we do, we do for God. And yes, if we're doing something unscriptural, we should listen to other people. But if what we've done is with a heart directed toward God and there's not a scriptural reason for why we don't do it, if somebody complains, excuse yourself, you weren't talking to them or doing this for them, you were doing it for the Lord. There'll be a lot of people that will come into your life and try to discourage what you do in service to Jesus Christ. Stand strong. Stay consistent. Serve from the heart. That's what we learn from this lesson. The text continues. And when we come 
to the next part of this text. We find Jesus' response to the disciples. This is a great opportunity for us to get teaching from the Lord concerning worship. And what we find first is talking contemptibly about the way others worship is wrong. There are a lot of people that just love to criticize other people. They love to talk about the way they worship. You know, the person who's up front maybe raising their hands during praise, wow, they're too showy. The person that's standing by them not raising their hands during the worship, what a stick in the mud. That person just can't cut loose. Right? It's like we're the barometer for what it should be and everybody else is wrong. That's a critical spirit. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 6, leave her alone. Now, this is a very, very clear statement that Jesus was saying to the disciples, what you're saying is wrong. She was right. Stay out of it. Right? A very clear statement. And then Jesus goes on to say, why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. When Jesus talks to the disciples, he tells them, in essence, stop bothering her, lay off. And then he describes her act of worship as a beautiful thing. You know, worship is something that is beautiful to God. We don't worship because we want to impress the people who come or we shouldn't. We don't invest in having a worship leader and putting resources into a worship team so that people will come and say, oh, I was entertained this morning. That's not the purpose. When you sing in church, it's not to impress or depress the person next to you. It's about God, right? So when we worship, our worship should be directed toward Him. And God forbid that any of us would become critical about the way others worship. As I've attended other churches, sometimes as a pastor, I can be critical. I can sit there and say, well, you know, he didn't really do an exegetical sermon there. I just don't think he handled the text, <laughs> you know? Now, he could have been sharing the Word of God just in a little different style than what I do. And that doesn't mean it has no value. That doesn't mean that it wasn't worshipful. If he's teaching the word, if his style differs, so be it. He might think mine is boring and dry. When it comes to worship styles, you might go to a more liturgical church. And you'll look and you'll say, oh, boy. Every move they make is prescribed. I just I can't get over that. I need spontaneity. Or you might go to another church that's totally spontaneous, and you're saying, this is driving me crazy. They have no order to this thing. Don't look at those things, the trappings of worship, and make that your judgment on worship. Do they honor Christ? Or are they giving their best? Those are the criteria that God mentions in this passage 
And he says to all potential critics, leave it alone. Cut it out. It's a beautiful thing they do to me. You see, worship is measured by the heart. And there are going to be different styles that appeal to different people. But the primary issue is, does it come from the heart? That's what the Lord looks at. Something else we find. Treating the temporal as more important than the eternal is wrong. Look at verse 7. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Now, there are some that look at this passage of Scripture, and they say that it's Jesus saying it's unimportant to give to the poor. It's more important to give to spiritual things, not what Jesus is saying. There is an element that's discussed here where we can become so obsessed with the physical needs of people, we don't think about the spiritual aspects. And there's a temptation in some churches where they become social rather than spiritual, and as a result, they have declined. They're so fixated on the temporal, they forget the eternal. When I was in college, I went to a liberal church one Sunday with a friend, we were on a beach project in South Carolina, and we walked into this church, and the guy that was speaking was the head of the missions organization for this particular denomination. And he said, you know, we used to go and worry about teaching the Bible to everyone, but we decided that it was more important to just feed them and leave that other stuff behind. You see, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both and. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you know, give to the poor. You can do that anytime you want. What's really being contrasted here is something else, though. The poor you will always have with you. In other words, there's always an opportunity to give to the poor. But me, not so much. Jesus knew he was going to the cross. He was going to die on the cross, be buried, risen, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The presence of Christ was not going to be there on a consistent basis. So he was telling them to focus on the fact that their opportunity to worship him as this woman did would be gone rather quickly. Then we come to the next part of the passage, and what we find here is taking what we have and giving it to God is never foolish. Look at verse 8. She did what she could. Now, this is a rather difficult phrase to translate. When we look in the original language, the idea that is being shared here is she gave what she had. In other words, she didn't hold back. She took her resources and she dedicated it to God. And then Jesus makes another statement. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Remember what nard was used for. Sometimes it was used for treating the cloths that would be wrapped around a person who had died. It would be added to other herbs and spices, and the fragrance would be in those cloths. Jesus was saying to the disciples, her act of worship was also an act of recognition, that what he had been telling her 
would soon come to pass. So Mary's act of worship was a recognition not only of his kingship, but of his imminent death. She worshiped Jesus. She had listened to what he had said. And she got things that the other disciples didn't. That's the implication of this passage. Now, when we look at this, we say, okay, she was a little more astute. She, she grasped some things. But what's so radical about this is this. In the first century, to have a woman with this kind of insight in a culture that was definitely male-dominated was a stark statement about her value as a woman. This passage of Scripture demonstrates that God appreciates and loves women. And it demonstrates how astute Mary was in this particular passage. One final idea. Jesus made a statement that telling this story over and over again would teach us how important worship is. Look at verse 9. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here we have three of the four gospels, Mark, Matthew, and John, who mention the worship that Mary gave to the Lord. It's in the eternal word of God. So you know what this says to me? Worship is so important to God that this single act of worship is included in God's eternal word. So how important should I view my worship toward God? I should understand that my worship to God is a beautiful thing to God. God doesn't need me to worship because he needs a pat on the back. God offers us the opportunity to worship for our benefit. But not just for our benefit. As we direct it toward God, God receives it as an offering. God receives it as a statement from us of our love and our devotion. And it pleases God. He doesn't need it, but he is pleased by it. And that's something that I think we need to consider in our worship. My worship pleases God. The next time you have opportunity to worship in church, to sing, remind yourself, my worship pleases the eternal God. And I'm directing it toward him with all of my heart, with all that I am, with all that I have. What a different perspective on worship we'll have when we view it in that way. Don't worry about your ability to hit the notes. Don't worry about what the person sitting next to you might think of your singing. Let it go unto God in worship and adoration of His name. This morning we've seen differing approaches to God. The one who got it right, Mary. The ones who got it wrong, religious leaders, the scholars, the experts, the traitor, and yes, even some of the followers of Jesus. Let's make sure that we get our worship right 
and that we direct it toward God as we should. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us of the importance of worshiping you from the heart. May we not become bogged down in the things that can distract us from worship, criticism, either ours or somebody's directed toward us. Let us love you, Lord, and worship you from a spirit of devotion from the heart. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.